Good morning, church. It's really awesome, and uh, I feel very privileged to be able to share with you this morning. Thanks, Nels. Um, church, I hope you know how much your pastor loves you and is praying for you. Um, I, I, I try to chat with Nels at least once a week, um, and man, he has such an incredible heart for you guys, and I just hope that you you know that and that you reach out to him. I know that he's trying to coordinate some things uh, to get some FaceTime with everyone, and and please take advantage of that because he deeply loves and, and cares for you. Um, it's been an interesting week uh, for me. Uh, Thursday, I was doing a one-on-one -on -one with somebody and <laughs> teaching them some, some, uh, some software. And they called me the next day and said, hey, man, I, I was exposed. And then the next day, they called me back and said, I tested positive. And so I was like, ah, no, not good. So ended up uh, going in and getting tested on um, Tuesday and praise Jesus, it came back negative, but I have still been <laughs> uh, uh, going by the CDC guidelines and in quarantine in my basement of my house and my wife has been graciously and, and, and very capably enduring the, the normal life upstairs with the kids. Um, she's so wonderful and such a blessing to me, but um so I've had a lot of time, a lot of time to to read and think and and study and and work uh, on my own down here. And and um, when Nels reached out to me and said, "Hey, you know, would you mind teaching on First uh, Corinthians seven? I was like, "You're joking, right? Like that's that's a really hard passage." And he said, "No." I was like, "Oh, okay, all right, cool. Yeah, sure, sounds good." So um, I'm just gonna ask for God's help. Uh, as I as I take you through this passage, it is very um, it's deep, and there's a lot to it, uh, and there's a lot of application for us. And and you know, like when you look at Romans, and you look at Romans one through eleven, it's a lot of theology. And you look at Romans twelve through sixteen, and it's doxology. The idea being one through eleven is teaching us things. The second part of the book is. This is how you act, theology, the study of God, doxology, the way you live in worship. And my prayer for us today is just that we really take this in, but then we, we, we look at how this applies to our lives so that we can really uh, live it out. So Jesus, help. Amen. That's the best thing that I can ask for is help. Um, so let's dive in. Um, I'm going to read the read the uh, first seven verses, and we'll take a look at those. Now, concerning this, the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another kind. Now, I think it's important to, to gain a little bit of background. As we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we know that this city was like 
not girls gone wild, but but Christians gone wild. This is an absolutely crazy, immoral city, and and uh, Paul is addressing so many different issues from 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 sex to idolatry to customs and all of these different things. So it's important for us to know maybe a little bit about the background of, of this city. The city of Corinth had, uh, the ancient city of Corinth had actually been destroyed in 146 BC by Mammius Achaicus and actually wasn't rebuilt fully until about 46 BC, probably under the direction of Julius Caesar. And the city lies on this, this narrow strip of land between the Corinthian Gulf in the north and the Saronic Gulf sort of in this in the south and it's like really a short little strip of land and this location brought a lot of uh, commercial prosperity there was an immense amount of shipping throughout this area and despite the lack of a canal which actually sort of like the Panama Canal was was built in much later in like 1893 um, boats would load onto like railroad type rails to get all of their cargo and sometimes even the boats to the other side of the isthmus. Um, there was always a large number of merchants from around the Roman Empire uh, who would be present in Corinth. The city was a Roman colony full of Romans, Greeks, uh, people of the Orient, uh, Jews, and more. It was very, very cosmopolitan. And the population was somewhere between, their estimates are between about 100,000 and maybe 600,000. It's kind of tough to guess, but that's about what the estimates are. Because of the newness of the city and the massive influx uh, of market and culture, Corinth was known as being completely morally corrupt. And it didn't carry the, the, the sort of like the intellectual status that the neighboring, its neighboring city, Athens, did. Um, and this lack of conscious, conscience citywide led to uh, immorality in, in all forms throughout all of the culture. One of the most uh, perverse first expressions of this was was through sex and sexuality and a, a landmark in which this was demonstrated was was on the apex of the uh, the Acre Corinth which was a, an 1800 foot tall mountain which hosted the the temple of Aphrodite which was brought by uh, people from the Orient <clears throat> and in ancient Corinth there was over uh, a thousand priestesses which were essentially temple prostitutes that would that would constantly be there engaging in all kind of fornication and and uh, promiscuity. The common lifestyle in Corinth really celebrated sexual immorality almost as a virtue um, in this newly established uh, and so this newly established Christian church, mostly made up of Gentiles, that just seemed like that was a, a normal part of the life because that was their culture. Um, and there was a massive culture shock for them to hear that this thing that was one sort of normal and, and in, in culture almost virtuous to, to be a part of. Um, it was a shock for them to see this as now being immoral. So in the city of morallessness, there were essentially four kinds of marriages that were that were taking place that would people people found themselves in and that Paul had to address uh, spiritually. The first was was tent companionship, which was which is like a slave marriage, and the owner could interfere in the owner of the slave could interfere in the marriage at any time. He could ship off the woman, ship off the man. He could engage with either of them. Very awkward, um, and many Christians were slaves and therefore um, dealt with this kind of of marital situation. The second kind of marriage was common law. And once together for once a couple was together for a year, they were basically regarded as as married. 
The third was uh, an arranged marriage, which fathers would actually sell their daughters in into marriage. Uh, and then the last was the standard marriage as as we know it. Uh, the cry from one extreme in this in the church in Corinth was that that men should be single and celibate. Um, and this was uh, some of the Corinthian people's argument for for what they thought might be the best Christian life. But Paul here says to the church that there's a more healthy and balanced way to appropriately submit yourselves to God through marriage, singleness, and specifically sex and marriage. So with the background laid out, let's uh, let's start by taking a look at, at verses one and two. Verse one and two. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, if you are at home and you're reading out of the NIV, I personally think, and I, I've heard this from, from several different trusted pastors, I think there's a mistranslation here uh, because it, it, it says that a man should not be married, I believe is what the NIV says. And I believe it's not talking about marriage specifically in that verse because the Greek word used, um, which means to touch was actually a euphemism in the day for, for sexual activities, not for marriage. So the problem ultimately wasn't marriage, but but the conjugal activities in regards to marriage. So I'm reading, like I said, from the ESV, which is a little bit more of a literal translation. So based on that, there's some discussion on whether Paul is making the statement in verse one, whether he is quoting what people in the church have written to him um, or uh, whether he is saying this himself. Um, and I think we can gain understanding from either perspective. So I'll address, I'll address both of them uh, briefly. So perspective one. So if, if this is Paul making the statement and not quoting someone in the church, we know that he'll go on to qualify this statement um, saying it's not good to have sexual relations uh, further in verse six. With that said, he's saying uh, as a single person, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Why is this? Why does he say this? Because Paul knows that a mind and a body that is fully committed to the Lord without the need for this kind of interaction is actually very freeing. It, it liberates um, the individual to do God's work exclusively without any distraction. And not that distractions are a, a bad thing, but it's, it's basically the responsibilities that you carry as a married person are far different than what they are as a single person. So uh, if you can be single, you don't have those responsibilities. So you can, you can dive in fully to whatever it is that God is calling you uh, holistically to do. And we'll come back to this uh, in verse six. Um, note also that, that Paul says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations. So wh wh why would he only be speaking to men here? While the same requirement of women may, women may just be implied here, I think Paul very intentionally often is always calling men to lead by example. And if all Christian men are making the decision to wait until marriage or recognize their unique gift of abstinence or celibacy, then women will have it easier in the church purely because men are making the right decision. So as men, we should recognize we have the opportunity, and we see this all through Scripture in Ephesians, the relationship in the, in the marriage and how that looks. 
men need to take responsibility and need to step out and lead. Um, and this is one example of that. Um, so it's important to recognize what the passage is saying, but it's also important to recognize what the passage is not saying. It's not saying that it's bad for a man to have sexual relations. The Christians in the church were coming to the conclusion that their sexuality needed to be abandoned uh, in submission to God. And we know that all through, through scripture and especially here in 1 Corinthians that, that this is not true. So the second perspective, this is, would be Paul answering uh, questions or even statements made by the church. This is probably what is is happening here. And there's there's reason to believe based on verses uh, 10 and 11, 39 and 40 in this chapter, and then also in chapter 11 in some places and in chapter 14, that there was this emerging sort of feminist caucus happening in the church. And some of the women in the church considered sex as spiritually defiling and were actually encouraging sexual abstinence. Some were encouraging divorce and, and that celibacy was the most appropriate spiritual trajectory. And Paul's answer in verse two and verse three uh, clears it up quite simply. So one other thing to notice is Paul's intentional use of words in verse two. Uh, he says, each man his own wife and each woman her own husband. So what Paul's advocating and, and, and desiring uh, and teaching us to do here as the body in this verse is, is monogamy. And we live in a city that is absolutely sex obsessed. It's one of the darkest cities in the U.S., one, maybe even in the world. I was actually at a friend's house um, six months ago, and he was sharing with me his own personal relationship. He was engaged. He was living with his, with his um, fiance, not, not a Christian. And uh, he was explaining to me that he and, um, and by the way, uh, parents, if you have kids, um, just want to encourage you. This might be a moment to encourage them to do something else. <laughs> I will be as PG as possible. But my friend starts talking about his own personal relationship with his fiance. And he starts going into his relationship and he starts talking about how she just came to him and said that she wants to have an open relationship, otherwise known as a polyamorous relationship. And how uh, he was struggling with it, but said to him, he said to me, he says, I'm realizing how selfish I am and how much I need to grow as a person. And this is a very important thing for me. And I said, bro, if there's any place to be selfish, it's in the marriage bed. You don't have to do this. And he said, no, no, it's a good thing for me to do. Well, I was at his house two weeks ago. The relationship's over. The relationship's done. That was never God's design. It only ever causes harm, confusion, a lack of trust. And for so many reasons, Jesus and Paul here in 1 Corinthians says, the relationship that I've created for you is meant to be between a man and a woman exclusively. Let's look at verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, remember the context here. Some of these people had married as unbelievers, and some of them probably, quite a number of them, thought that they should be celibate in marriage as, as the most holy act to God. And what's important to recognize here is that Paul is saying that 
this act of intimacy is a, is a conjugal right or or maybe better said a marital responsibility in God's eyes. This is something that you're supposed to do. There's an important principle that God wants us to understand and coming together is an important thing and not not demanding an exclusive right to your own body but but recognize this oneness that happens is extremely important. Now Paul isn't advocating for for exploitation sexually. Some people think that Paul's a chauvinist and he's actually the opposite of that. He is he is completely advocating for uh, each person to fully recognize their own um, responsibility within their body. And, and they do have rights to their own body in, in one sense spiritually, but that spiritual right is also to give to the, the spouse. And now those, as you become one, um, those rights become a, a, a unifying thing. Um, no, no man that's, that's called to die for his, for his wife. Um, as Christ died for the church should then go and abuse the sexual relationship with the one he's, he loves supposedly more than his own life. And likewise, uh, since a woman is called to lovingly and willingly submit herself uh, to her husband, why would she then go and abuse the intimacy of the marital bed? That doesn't make any sense. There, there there's a, there's a unity and a, and a submission and a love and a care that, that men and women are supposed to have for each other as a unified uh, body in in marriage god's design is 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 to find help us find joy and delight and oneness in each other in this way and the desire is actually put there by god and this is the actually the only godly appropriation um, of this desire Let's look at verse five. Do not deprive one another except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's implying here that the, the deprivation of intimacy is a very dangerous thing. And the act of intimacy, it's meant to be habitual, not impulsive. Men, we need to not wait until we feel like it, but we need to be intentionally uh, wooing our spouses and, and women in the same way, be intentional about, about the planting those seeds of intimacy and, and remind your husband how, how safe you feel with him or how wonderful he is with the kids or, or how much you appreciate the hard work that he does or, or any of those things. Plant the seeds that lead to intimacy. Don't let it be a thing of, of um, impulse or just a, a feeling that happens, make it make it habitual. Be intentional about it. Now, there's some things to be aware of, men. If your wife has recently uh, had a baby, be passionate and be patient and be considerate. Uh, if there's medical issues, that's something to be aware of. But have a plan to work through it. And Paul's by no means a legalist. Clearly, if, if abstinence was the best thing, he would advocate for it. And for single people, he does advocate for that. Um, and to the same extreme, demanding sex from your partner whenever you want it is, is, is not an extreme to be considered here either. There's all kinds of excuses for withholding intimacy, you know, in this, in this situation, tiredness, uh, boredom, resentment, altercations, trust, et cetera, et cetera. Insert your own, you know, your own reason. 
But the reason we're called and instructed to maintain that intimacy habitually uh, is is connection um, and 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 a joy that we can have. Um, we may have to work through the relational issues that would allow us the deep connection we desire, um, but that's important to do. It's it's not just sex; it's oneness. Marriage is not one plus one equals two. It's marriage really is one plus one equals one. You're coming together as one flesh. You're not your own. You now are unified. Now, if you both agree, if you both agree that for whatever reason you should take a step back, there should always be a time frame put in place and open communication about that part of the relationship. And most importantly, it should be centered around prayer. So be vigilantly praying during that time that God would do a work in you and your spouse um, and, and bring you back together to, to have that intimacy. And, and why is that? Why should it be centered around prayer? Why is it for a limited period of time? Um, because you're not as strong as you think. Paul's reason for you getting married is that it's because you burn. I mean, you are clearly filled with passion for intimate things. So that's why you're not single because you burn. Clearly, there are many other biblical reasons for marriage um, that are very important. All, there's at least six other really strong reasons uh, for marriage, which I won't go into now. But listen, you're not as strong as you think, and I'm sure that you know that. So keep it to a limited time and pray, and then get back to doing what Jesus-loving married people do. So let's look at verse six and seven, and this is where we'll wrap up. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. A, a better translation of, of concession um, in verse six may be awareness. Since the Greek word is, is synom, it means uh, spiritually informed. Paul's reason for this suggestion is made from personal experience. Like I said before, he recognized the, recognizes the freedom he has in which he can serve the body of Christ um, uninhibitedly uh, and do the will of the Father. Now, there is very strong uh, arguments that Paul was actually married because to be an Orthodox Jew and to be in uh, the synagogue uh, or the Sanhedrin, um, you, the requirement was that you had to be married. So uh, uh, we would guess that one of two things happened. One, either Paul, uh, Paul's wife died or, um, she left him when, uh, you know, after his Damascus road, uh, experience, we don't know for sure, but there's good reason that Paul is coming to this from a, an experience of knowing what marriage is like and knowing what singleness is like. So he is not only informed by the spirit, he's informed by, by practical experience. If he were to have a wife and perhaps kids, his ministry focus would be diminished significantly. Regardless of how wise or attentive uh, you are to your wife or family, nothing can really replace total freedom to do uh, as the spirit leads. And Christ makes it plain in this, in, in this passage here in, in Matthew 19 that I'm going to read. Um, that this freedom of celibacy is actually a gift from God. In Matthew 19, 70, uh, the, the disciples are asking some questions and they said to, to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? And he said to them, not everyone can receive this, but only those to whom it is given. For there's eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And here's where we get to it. Then there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one who is able to receive this receive it. So many people at this time in the church were starting to suppress the God-given sexual desires they had. And in doing so, were breaking up with their, their betrothed or those who they were engaged to, to be celibate. They thought it was better to just not have sex, period, not understanding the God-given desires and, and applications for sexuality. So Paul tries to help them understand God's plan for marriage and sex and this specific application of celibacy. And it really, really is a gift. And for those of you that are single out there, please recognize what a gift that is. And even if you do burn, I really want you to understand something. So I'll tell you my a little bit of my own experience real quick. Single guy up until I was 34 years old. Um, in 2000, I ended up going, well, I was 23, I ended up going on a mission trip to Brazil with the church I was part of. And I met this guy who was a single guy. He was in his late 30s, early 40s at the time. And I started to, when I got back from Brazil, started to go to a Bible study with him and a couple other people. And I started to get to know his story. And I found out that that he had come to the Lord very uh, much later in his life. And his wife, when he came to the Lord, uh, left him. And he made a decision that he was not going to remarry and that he was going to devote himself to the work of the Lord. And as a single person in my you know, early 20s, I recognized what a powerful use of his life that was. And I wanted to get married. I burned. I was really excited to get married. But during my entire, the entire decade of my 20s, I decided I was really going to make use of that time and really, really, really just dive into the things of the Lord. And I I would be studying the word two or three hours a day. And this isn't to, to brag on myself or make myself look cool or anything. I just realized how powerful it was. And I started uh, leading Bible studies and, and I would spend hours and hours just pouring into the word and studying and trying to understand it. And what happened was during that time of singleness, and for those of you that are single, I would encourage you to do this. I built an incredible biblical foundation and I, I traveled the world and, and started a nonprofit and was doing music evangelism. And I did went to over 40 countries and I did so many things that really gave me a great foundation um, for my life and going into marriage, having that foundation has been absolutely incredible. But until for those of you that burn, for those of you that want to have an intimate relationship with a spouse, um, that are not married, use this time. So, okay, I've blazed through seven verses. I've given you a little bit of, of you know, history for the first century church. Um, what does this mean for you? Number one, if you're not burning, consider devoting your life to being single for the sake of the kingdom. That's a big commitment. But if that's where your if that's where your heart is at and you don't have that desire, Consider doing that. Number two, if you do burn, 
Use this time of singleness to grow in the deepest way possible with the Lord and serve in a greater way, both with time and your resources, time and money. While you have the time, do it, do it. I can tell you from personal experience, it is so fulfilling. And three, husbands and wives, don't deny each other intimacy. If you're going to break from the marital bed, it should be mutually agreed. It should be for a specific time and you should devote yourself to prayer. I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to, to, to share with you guys today. Church, you're, you're loved by a gracious and benevolent father. And I pray that his truth and, and love and grace permeate your hearts and minds this week. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll turn this over to Jincy and she's going to share a little bit more with you about 1 Corinthians. Well, church, good morning. Uh, I'm really grateful that we can fellowship together in this medium. Um, you know, can you believe it's October already? Um, the other day, Sophia was talking about something exciting that she did two months ago. And out of curiosity, we asked her, you know, which month she was referring to. And she said March. I mean, we've time traveled and nobody's talked about it still. Um, Jeremy, thank you so much for the background that you gave on uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and, you know, going into much detail, verses 1 through 7. And since it's a long chapter and Jeremy already talked about the first half of the passage, uh, I'm going to focus on a few other verses today. So to be honest, this is one of those passages that I have just skimmed through a lot of times because it seemed like it was a very specific passage for a specific problem that I didn't think I had. You know, think about it. This passage is not something I've even heard during weddings. The usual ones are, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Uh, you know, my, my claim to a theological background is just that my dad was a Bible college professor. So bear with me as I stumbled my way through the context and background of this chapter. As uh, Pastor Nell said earlier, I'm going to look at this passage through my own set of biases and my heritage and where I come from. Um, so, you know, as a background, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, this chapter is Paul's response to a question that the Church of Corinth had. Uh, they wrote to Paul asking for some clarifications as they were forming that new church. You know, they were a new church and I can picture them, you know, all of them coming together, trying to write their bylaws and people had different ideas of what spirituality and what following Christ meant at that time. They did not have the written scripture to follow and come up with these rules and laws that, that God has given us now. So uh, some observations from my end. Um, to me, this chapter is all about focusing our eyes on the big picture. You know, Paul gives these quick sound bites on marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, the fleeting nature of life, and the big overarching picture of uh, living in the state that we're called called in. My, my first observation when I read this chapter was, gosh, this church is a mess. You know, from reading this chapter, you can follow almost three groups of people who have clashing ideas. Uh, one group regarded marriage as an absolute duty, um, which is, you know, these, this is the group that came from Jew the Jewish faith. The second group considered marriage to be a result of weak moral condition. 
for those who are burning with passion. And the third group's ideas were that when you were when you became a Christian, you were free of all your duties in a relationship, including marriage. So this chapter is Paul's response to competing ideas in the church. So if you look a bit more below the surface, you know, from my perspective, these are all rules and ideals that people wanted to create. Um, I, I almost see these as legalistic moves. And as Jeremy mentioned earlier, Paul was not a legalistic person. Then chapter five, we heard a couple of weeks ago, folks in the church were um, callous to certain actions and sins in the church, but they were creating these conversations almost as a means of ignoring the real issues in the church. Um, my second observation from this passage is that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Um, to use this gift well, we definitely need God's help. Later on in chapter 12, Paul talks more about gifts and how what the different types of gifts are and how we should use and serve God through our, through our gifts. You know, gifts bear witness to the giver. Paul emphasizes that we may all have different gifts. They may all come from God, and but they all bear witness to God. Uh, like Pastor Nels talked about last week, our witness is through our perspective. You know, the sense I get from reading this chapter is that Paul is repeatedly pointing the Church of God uh, of Corinth to look at the big picture. He he also touches on the short time that we have on this on this earth. You know, both our lifespan and the second coming of Jesus. So when we look at everything in our lives, um, we have to look at it through the lens of perspective of, our, of what our life is as um, believers. Another thing that stood out to me um, as a woman reading this chapter is that Paul was willing to stand up for equality while living in a very male dominant culture. You know, when he talks about the wife having power over her husband's body and vice versa, he, he opens the door to discussions on what it means to be equal partners in a marriage. You know, marriage is a mutually beneficial state. Uh, it's a partnership. It's a holistic connection between two individuals. He talks about the importance of sex within marriage, but that's not all. You know, it's genuine love and affection between two individuals. And when you love someone deeply, you don't see them as less than. Um, Jeremy talked about the most difficult parts of the passage, so I'm going to focus on a little more easier things here. Um, the first thing I wanted to draw our attention to is being content in the state that we're called to serve. So 1 Corinthians 7, 17 uh, says, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. You know, though, though this letter was to the church of Corinth, uh, it is important to note that he speaks this as a rule for all churches. You know, Paul does not tell the Jews to act like Gentiles or if that would some that, you know, somehow make them more Christian if they, um, if they gave up what made them um, or gave up their culture or their surroundings. He, he doesn't tell Gentiles or the other cultures that were in the church to act more like, Jew, uh, more like the Jews as if it would make them more 
you know, be um, people who are selected by God. You know, we often struggle with desire to change the externals of our life as means of looking more more Christ-like or more Christian, uh, but not out of like genuine submission to God. Paul doesn't tell slaves to aspire to remain slaves, but instead to seek freedom when it comes. And as they have a new master, Jesus Christ, who does not suffer, you know, the um, worldly suffering to hold his brothers in captivity. So this is Paul's rule for all churches. I'm called to be a Christian where I am. Uh, following Jesus does not free me of all the responsibilities that I have in this world. You know, from my understanding of this scriptural passage, is that the function of becoming a believer is not getting a new outer life, but making our old life new. There were multiple cultures coming to Jesus at that time. As uh, Jeremy mentioned earlier, it was a cosmopolitan city. There were folks of Jewish faith and also folks who followed other um, the, the Roman practices. You know, Paul does not ask folks to assimilate, but accommodate all the different stations of life that we come from. So in this passage, Paul's point is that each person should remain in the calling that they were when God called them. Uh, it's a very important principle. It is so important that, God, uh, that Paul repeats it three times in this passage. You know, he, um, it, it is a principle that when God calls us into a relationship with himself, through our faith in Jesus, we become new creations in Christ. So I don't take this to mean that everything in our outward life now needs to be abandoned or that now we need to start our life from scratch. Rather, you know, we walk as a faithful Christian in the very place that God has placed us, where he has called us to himself. And that's where he will use us and use us to our, his maximum um, for the maximum spread of his kingdom and witness. So he, uh, Paul repeats this principle again in verse 20. It says, each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. And also again in verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Ultimately, where we're where we are going is more important than where we are from. You know, I can see this tying into what Pastor Nels talked about last week. Where does our identity come from? Does it come from the stations we're placed in? Does it come from our job, our relationship, or does it come from God? The Church of Corinth, um, you know, the from the uh, letter that we don't have access to that letter, but assuming the letter that they wrote to Paul. They wanted, uh, my perspective is that they wanted everybody to be the same and assimilate into this homogenous culture when they became believers. But Paul's rule was to unite and um, to accommodate all the different people in God's creation through Christ. You know, we often tend to look at Christianity through the Western lens. It's true that, you know, Western Christianity has the biggest number of followers, but it is, it is always important and good to remember the big picture, you know, that Jesus is Lord of all, and he's not limited to a certain class of people. We're called to stay where we are when God called us to follow him, but also follow him uh, when he is ready to lead us into a different situation.
Well, the second thing I want to draw our attention to is to look at the big picture or to maintain perspective. In verse 29, um, Paul starts out with what I mean. So everything before this uh, verse in this passage, you know, he tries to illustrate that our time on this earth is short and we are to live accordingly. The verse says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do, did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world is, in its present form, is passing away. You know, what this text calls us to do is to maintain an end time perspective. Um, to appreciate the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection, it showed us a new era. Um, to remember that as Christians, we live with one foot in this world and one foot in, in the kingdom of God. And if we can maintain that kind of perspective, uh, I think it'll buy us a great deal of freedom and peace. You know, um, we can carry on with our normal lives, uh, marrying, working, raising children, and planning for retirement, um, building relationships, but without falling to the kind of preoccupation with material things that always try to tempt us and ensnare us. You know, it is really difficult to live in a world that celebrates sex, money, and power as ultimate values um, without being affected by that perspective. You know, we have events um, that intrude on our lives and force us to think more deeply. Um, when our lives are, you know, our circumstances now, um, like our lives are being crushed under the weight of the pandemic, or um, a few weeks ago when we had to, pers we, personally, we had to flee our home because of the danger of wildfire. And suddenly, you know, things that seemed so important a, a few minutes ago faded into the background. And when we face a crisis, we tend to quickly reorient ourselves to what is more important. You know, a, a perspective shift um, always focusing our eyes on Jesus and knowing that this world is temporary, it leads to resilience. Uh, I remember when we, uh, when the wildfires were getting really close to our house, uh, we packed up and left. And Nels asked how the kids were doing with all this. And something he said really stu stuck with us, that the kids will be okay because we're, we were resilient. And it was one of the best compliments someone could give us under those circumstances. You know, we reflected on those words and what it means to be resilient. Everything we go through in this world, looking through the lens of eternity, it's very short. Uh, so the, this text um, that we just read, it really calls us to live that kind of refocus life. You know, it, it becomes a habit. This world is temporary, so it really only deserves our secondary attention. Um, the kingdom of God is already a reality it became a reality when jesus came down for us died for us and went back to heaven and he's waiting for us there you know and and focusing our eyes on that is what really counts the so church i really appreciate this opportunity and i pray that everybody you know you everyone has a really good week 
And um, Jesus, please help us to um, be grateful for the different stations that you have placed us in. You know, help us walk in ways that will honor God with our marriage and singleness. Um, help us pray that we'll, he will help us to transform us more and more in his image and in his likeness.